Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast, where we want to know God, love people, and reach our world. There's a story in the Bible of a guy named Jacob who loved a girl named Rachel, and he worked for seven years to marry her. Because he loved her so much, time flew by, and then the big day came. And so did the next morning. But when Jacob awoke, he found out he had not married Rachel, but Rachel's sister Leah. How do you not know who you're married to until the next morning? But the truth is, no one knows who they married until the next morning, or the next year, or the next decade. We are in a series right now, taking a look at the relationship of Jacob and Leah and how their story can impact the way we see our own marriages. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. There you can find all our video messages as well as exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. Now, let's get into this week's message. Glad to have you with us, especially if you're a guest. We're so glad you're worshiping with us today. Uh, Who knows what's happening two weeks from today? Easter. Easter, come on, who's excited for Easter? Yeah, it's a great day to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. You know, one of the biggest things we want to do at Easter is take advantage of the opportunity to help someone get to know who Jesus is. Isn't that what we want to do, right? I mean, heaven is real, heaven is real, eternity is forever. We we should, like, that should really touch us. And so here's the thing. I was just reading a study, found out this, I didn't realize this, but they say that people are 72% more likely to accept your invitation to church on Easter than any other Sunday. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? I mean, just think about that. What impact we could have if every single one of us goes out and invites somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and if 72% of those people actually respond, we could make a real difference in some people's lives, right? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You knew this was coming, didn't you? I'm going to ask you to take this week and pray. And that's all you have to do this week. This week, I want you to pray about somebody in your life, one person, unless you're an overachiever. There's always overachievers. You have a place in heaven too. You can pray for two or three of them. Just so you know, God doesn't love you just because you're an overachiever more than he does everybody else. He loves us all the same, all right? So there you go. But if you're an overachiever, you can pray for more. Anyway, pray for one name this week, somebody who is not in a church family, somebody who is not knowing about Jesus or following Jesus, and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to touch their heart. Because next Sunday, we're going to give you an invite to our Easter service, the overachievers, you can pick up extras, but, uh, and then we're going to hopefully see God change a lot of lives. That's what we want to do. So good. You guys with me? Yeah. Excited. Okay. Let me do it. We used to do three services long ago. And, and the best thing about the third service was how loud and lively and how much fun they were having. Like all the people who feel like they've got to sit prim and proper and smile and not laugh at jokes. They go to the first two services. You guys get to make all the noise you want to. You're not allowed to throw things. You can't throw things, but you can enjoy yourself. Okay. So that's how that goes. Well, hey, we're in a marriage series we've been doing. We're actually on part three of that series, as you just saw that little video. It's called Jacob and Leah, because it's all about the idea that no one knows who they've married until, and you fill in the blank, whatever, however it has gone down in your life, something comes up somewhere along the way and you go, wow, I never knew. And so this is about that process of discovering who we've married and then learning to love this person that we're married to. So even though this is part three on Sunday morning, we had two on Sunday morning so far, we've also had one part last Sunday night, really special Sunday night. How many of you were here for that, right? Yeah. Here's the thing. If you missed it, you missed it. 
because that was a special Q&A with the pastoral team on physical intimacy and its place in our marriage. And uh, we're just not putting that online, just so you know. Uh, so we've heard a lot of good feedback, a lot of people saying, can we do another one? I just want to go ahead and tell you next time we do one, don't miss that one. It's really special. But let me take a minute and commend so, so, so many of you, either because of last night or the first two weeks in the series so far, we are getting inundated, which we're glad for. We're glad for, but we're getting inundated for requests for marriage counseling. People saying, come on, pastor, help us. We, we need some help. We, we want to talk about some stuff. And I just really do want to commend you, honestly, because too many times in my career, someone has made an appointment and honestly, they made it too late. And look, I would love to, you know, have a shirt that says it's never too late for Jesus. And that's theologically true. But practically speaking, some people have run their marriage so far into the ground, they've gotten such a hard heart toward their spouse that Jesus would literally need to descend from heaven and show up in my office to help those people, right? And, and so I just want to commend you for not waiting that late. Y'all think I'm joking? Okay, seriously, one time I was working with a couple, they seemed to not be receiving anything that I was saying. They, they didn't seem to want to say I'm sorry, that nothing. And so I just said, do you even want to make this work? And the, the husband looked at me and said, well, actually I came here from the divorce attorney. And then I looked at her and she said, well, my boyfriend's helping me move out on Friday. And I said, get out of my office. <laughs> so seriously, some people wait till it's too late. So I want to commend you for not waiting till it's too late for actually coming and seriously saying, can you help us? But I can help all of us. It's like a thousand to one ratio right now. I need y'all to know that. I can't personally help every single marriage. And so my assistant's been real gracious and saying, you know, he's got a lot of people trying to get help. And, and they said, that's fine, I'll wait. Your marriage can't wait as long as it's going to take for me to get every one of you on my calendar. So here's the deal. I would love to sit down with every one of you. Please don't misinterpret this. I would love to sit down and counsel every single one of you. There's just going to be a trade-off. And the trade-off is I'm not preaching for the next year. And so if, if you don't want me to preach for the next year, right? Come on, do you want me to preach? Thank you. First service, when I asked that question, I had one lady. Yes. I gave them the mean sermon, so y'all gonna get the nice one. But anyway, in all reality, we'd need to like put up a clipboard in the lobby today and let each of you sign up for a Sunday for the rest of the year. And we can't do that. So here's the thing. Instead of coming to me, because we do have great stories. My wife and I are able to help some marriages and, and people say, well, look what God's done in your life. I'm sure. Instead of coming to me, can I recommend you go to the people who helped us? That would make sense, wouldn't it? Do you want to go to the person who got healed or do you want to go to their doctor? Yeah, come on, you want to go to their doctor, right? So look, the people that helped us the most 15 years ago when we were falling apart are the people that I hired to be our pastoral staff. There's a reason I hired them. So Kent and Patrice, their spouses, our elders, I'm just telling you, we've got a lot of people who can help. Please do not think I'm the only one that can help you, okay? Good. Yeah, I still love you. I'm here for you. Y'all understand that? I just can't do a thousand marriages every week, so we're good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so I told you we're going to be talking about fun stories about my wife and I as we're going through the series because at least nothing else you'll feel better about yourself. So today, instead of a fun story, we're going to start with a fun fact. Anybody want to know a fun fact about my wife and me? Anybody? Fun facts? Yeah. Okay, here you go. Fun fact, true fact. We got engaged on our first date. Yeah, come on. Thank you. I'm glad somebody thought that was appalling because it is. It is appalling. Don't do it. Young single people don't do what we did. 
That might explain some of the hardship we went through. Uh, but anyway, so here's kind of how it worked. Uh, my wife and I, we knew each other. She was my translator. Uh, so the only time we'd really ever had a conversation was when I was preaching in English and she was standing beside me translating it into Romanian. And we counted that as a conversation. And so after we had had a few conversations together and worked on a ministry team together, I finally asked her pastor if I could borrow his car. I drove her to the neighboring town, took her out for pizza. And then after pizza, we went out, we sat on a bench in the park and I said, I feel like God has called us to get married. <laughs> and her answer was, okay. <laughs> I didn't even get a yes. Come on, man, I didn't even get a yes. And in case you've ever wondered what it's like to be going to church at Grace Life, you need to know your pastor, when he thinks he's heard from God, is, is a little bit crazy. Because that's faith. When I moved halfway around the world, to go, went back halfway around the world to go talk to my dad, to buy a ring, and to come back and spent two months away from her all on an okay. I mean, come on, think about that. But look, when I think God's told me to do something, I'm just going to go and be crazy and do it anyway. So... Gaged on the first date, married six months later, two of those that I spent in the States buying a ring, talking to my family and getting ready to become a married man, that was crazy. So you can already assume this. When we got married, we didn't know each other. Craziness. But you know what? That wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was we didn't know ourselves. Come on, I know somebody's starting to figure out what I'm talking about here. We didn't know ourselves. You see, there was this thing that had happened to each of us that maybe some of you have experienced. It was this thing called life. And sometimes big stuff happens, sometimes little stuff happens. But either way, somewhere along the way, uh, you've got some hurts, and you've got some disappointments, and you've got some brokenness, and you've got some neediness, and then you go and get married. But the truth is, when you're getting married, you don't know you have any of that stuff. Because all you think is, we're young, and we're in love, and we're ready for marriage. Because I need all the old married people to help me laugh at all the young people. Because all we think we need when we're young and in love is, is get married. Everything's going to be fine. Very few of us are actually in touch with our brokenness and our neediness. So what I'd like to talk about today as we look at Jacob and Leah, a little bit of their story, is uh, what exactly happens when broken and needy people come together. If you've got your Bibles, you can join me. We're in Genesis 29, starting in verse 30. If you don't, they'll be on the screen right here. But before we go there, let me catch us all up. A little bit of the backstory. We're now in part three of the series, and you may not be real familiar with the story. So the story starts with a guy named Jacob, and uh, his parents uh, said, hey, we want you to find a wife that's not from here. Turns out they were living in a foreign land and they didn't want Jacob to marry one of the foreign women who worshiped foreign gods and had other values. And so they said, we want you to go back home to your mother's land, to people who know us and, and worship like us. And we want you to go and pick a wife from there. And so Jacob sets off on this journey. Now I need you to just kind of like think about the way this journey worked because he didn't have Google maps and, and, and this wasn't people you saw every Christmas. He's literally never seen these people because they live like countries away across some desert and some sand or whatever. And so Jacob says, okay. And he begins to just set off on this crazy journey. Had a little something to do with his brother wanted to kill him and he really needed to get out of Dodge, but that's another sermon series. And so Jacob just wanders off into the woods and he goes miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles and stumbles upon these people that were watering uh, uh, the herds and that they were giving water to the sheep. And he, he comes upon them and says, hey, do you happen to know a guy named Laban? And they say, well, actually, these are his sheep. 
Oh my gosh. I mean, like we're talking like thousands of camels across the world and over some sand dunes and everything. And he has managed to stumble upon the one person that he's actually looking for. And they say, actually, not only are these a sheep, that's his daughter coming right now. And then Jacob looks and he sees this beautiful girl named Rachel and goes, oh my goodness, God is good to me, right? And so turns out that he, he, he likes Rachel. He talks to her for a minute and he says, take me to your father. So Jacob goes to her father. His name is Laban. This is his uncle, by the way. No, this story is not from Kentucky. It's from the Bible. Okay, but anyway, <laughs> I just uh, offended somebody. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but anyway, and so, so Jacob goes up to Laban and says, I'd really like to marry your daughter, Rachel. She's amazing. I actually already kissed her by the well. Sorry about that. Forgot to get your permission. But if it's okay with you, since I kissed her, I'll just go and have her. Oh, she'll be my wife. And Laban's answer was, better that I give her to you than some strange person I've never met. So why not? And Jacob says, wonderful. I'll marry her. What do I need to do? And Laban says, serve me for seven years. And Jacob says, it'll be but like a night because she's so beautiful. And the time passed and the seven years goes by. And so this is where we are in the story over the last two weeks that Jacob finishes the seven years for Rachel, says, please bring Rachel to me. Let me go and have Rachel now. I have worked my seven years. But when the wedding feast begins and the wedding night comes, Laban sneaks in Rachel's older sister because, well, the older has to get married first in that culture. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning, and behold, it was Leah, one of the best, funniest lines in all of the Bible. If you guys don't read the Bible, I'm telling you, you're missing out on some really crazy good stuff. It's in there. And so then Jacob is really upset about this thing. Whoa, wait a minute. This is, I served you for Rachel, and I just got married to Leah. This is wrong. And the response is comical. The response is not oh, I'm sorry, we gave you the wrong product. Bring it back with the receipt and we'll take care of this. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, well, you've got her, but here's an idea. Just finish the wedding. As soon as the wedding's over, we'll just have another one and give it to the other girl too. This is the Bible. I'm just telling you, it's really there. Now, here's the thing. A Jewish wedding was not like our weddings where, you know, you just have a little ceremony that lasts 15 minutes. You go down the hall, you get some cake, shove it in each other's faces. Then you get in a limo that's got cans tied to the back of it and you go get on a cruise and it's all good. You know, the Jewish wedding, the way they did it at that time was a week long feast. And so they were together for seven days. Everybody was watching everything that happened for seven days. All the guests were there for seven days. And so when Jacob found out he had married the wrong one, he goes to Laban, he yells at him, and he's upset about this. Laban says, just finish the week, man, just finish the wedding. And so on day eight of his marriage, he has another wedding. Come on, this is where we are, picking it up, everybody. We're in chapter 29, verse 30. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for maybe now, maybe, just maybe, now my husband will love me. If you've been here for the series, every part of the series has had a name based upon what we're learning from Jacob and Leah that day. Today's message is called Chasing Love because Leah is chasing love. See, here's what I want us to understand about this. Leah's never been loved. Leah's completely unloved. 
let's just set the stage. Leah was the firstborn. She was the oldest. No one ever came along and asked Leah if they would like to be married with her. She was older, so she was marrying age before Rachel. So she was already thinking, maybe today somebody will come. Maybe today somebody will come. And she hears, a stranger has come. Someone has come. And it turns out that he wants the younger, prettier sister who's already of marrying age, right? Think about that. And maybe Leah says, okay, not too big a deal. He's going to have to work for seven years. Somebody will come along who will love me. Year one goes by. Year two and three and four, five, six, and seven. And in seven years beyond the point that somebody loved Rachel, no one has ever asked for Leah. She's already figured out that Rachel's the prettier one, and she's not. And people are willing to work seven years and wait seven years for her sister, but nobody will take her even if they could have her for free today. And then her father. Now, I've got one little girl, and I'm going to tell you what. I love that little girl a lot. Her brothers know that. (laughs) And if there was any thought that the man that was about to marry her was not going to love her more than anything in the world, she will live in my house forever. That's just the way it's going to be for my little girl. But Laban had no problem giving his unloved daughter to a man who didn't love her. Makes me wonder if she ever felt loved by Laban. And if that wasn't enough, she was given to a man who would never love her in a way that was pretty much guaranteed he never would because she tricked him. She deceived him. She was in on the plot. And if that wasn't bad enough, on the eighth day of her marriage, she had to go to a wedding for husbands so that he could marry the one that he loved while she was hated. Now, here's the problem if you can just get yourself into where Leah is mentally, she can either spend the rest of her life rejected, hated, that's the word the Bible uses, unloved, unwanted, or she can think, just maybe, wait, wait, just maybe he hasn't seen the best side of me yet. Just maybe I haven't quite won his his favor yet. Just maybe there's something that that I could do. Just maybe there's something that I could give him that would win him over, that would woo his heart. Maybe there's something that I can do to chase the love that he's not giving me. I can have kids. My little pretty sister can't. Nobody else can. But I can give him children. And there's nothing more important to a man in this culture than that he has sons. And so she has a son. She names him Reuben. Now, as we're going to watch in this story, every time she has a child, the name has a meaning for the brokenness of her heart. You see, Reuben actually means, see, a son. See, there's a son. I have given you a son. Do you see I have given you a son? I want you to think about that every time that Jacob had to say, Reuben, come over here. He literally was saying, see, what the unloved woman has given me. Come over here. And she had to hear him say it and notice that it didn't change his heart. Spoiler alert. 
it never does. Because she goes on with chasing love. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this one also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Three sons. That's a wealth in this culture. He's got to love me. I've done for him what no one else can ever do. I've done for him what Rachel will never do. She's barren. He's got to be attached to me. He's finally got to come and take my hand and say, this is my wife. These are our sons. This has got to work. She called his name Levi because Levi means attached. Three sons chasing his love, and he still doesn't get it. And then something happened. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which happens to mean, or to sound like the word for praise, and then she ceased bearing. You see, something did change. I think, based on the names of her children, she figured out chasing Jacob's love was never going to work. And on son number four, she finally figured out, I'll praise God, because God has been good to me. And God is good to me. And she stopped expecting her husband to meet all of the needs of the brokenness in her soul, what her dad never gave her, what no one else ever gave her. See, here's the truth. Every one of our souls has needs. Every one of us, we have a certain amount of emotional need, a certain amount of spiritual need, even a certain amount of physical need. I mean, there are studies done on babies that are born in orphanages that don't get the amount of physical touch that, that normal babies growing up with their mom in the, in the room that they don't get. And then there's just something, they have a detachment disorder with their soul, even physically, emotionally, spiritually, we have needs. But the problem is every single one of us grew up in a broken world. Every single one of us has some degree of brokenness, some need for more than what we've had. We need more affirmation than what we got. We need more acceptance than what we got. Something is always going on. And then what we don't realize is we go into marriage expecting our spouse to meet those needs, but we don't even know that those needs are there. We don't even know how broken we are. I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat in my office with a couple after the marriage is not going well, and I've heard the wife say something like, I thought my husband was going to make up for what my dad missed. Some version of that sentence. It is so common. And then I can't tell you the number of times I've heard the husband say something like, my wife will think I am awesome. There's seven billion people on the planet, dude. She's choosing me. My daddy didn't like me. My coach didn't like me. My boss fired me, but she thinks I'm awesome. She's always going to think I'm awesome. I got news for you, young single man. She is not going to think you're awesome every day of your life. And then something's going to flare up right here. See, here's the truth we need to know today. Meeting all the needs of our soul is a burden no human can carry. Can you hear me? Meeting every need in your soul is a burden no human can carry. I've got a little illustration that I hope will help us this morning. You may have wondered, what in the world is going on? Is Jimmy just going to get really thirsty while he's preaching today? And the answer to that is no. See, here's the deal. When we get married, God intends for us, because he says the two shall become one. He intends for our spouse to be able to fulfill us, for our spouse to be able to come and to add to all the affirmation and the acceptance and the affection and the things that we need in our lives and, and, and to bring something that makes us feel like we're loved. 
The problem, though, is this. There was a day when we were in school, and might have been second grade, might have been fourth grade. For me, it was second. And I came home with a B, and my mom said, why wasn't that an A? And it just puts a little hole in your soul. Because you needed someone to say, that's good. And someone only said that could have been better. Or you need your father to tell you, man, you know, you're just awesome. But your father's a little overwhelmed. He didn't say much at all that day. And then there's another little hole in your soul. And because of those holes in your soul more than ever, you really needed to make the team. But you didn't make the team. And, well, things just keep happening. And your girlfriend breaks up with you for the star quarterback. And then you get married and you think they're going to fulfill you and they're going to make you feel complete. But the truth is, your soul is just broken. And no matter what your spouse gives you, it's, well, it's never going to be enough. And some of us, this is what our life looks like, but others of us, our upbringing wasn't so good. See, for some of us, we actually had a father who said, you'll never amount to anything. And the hole was devastating. But there's some good news. Instead of going into marriage thinking that our spouse and our spouse alone is going to meet all these needs, if we could just understand God alone is the one who heals and plugs every hole and makes us complete, and then suddenly, and suddenly our spouse can add affirmation and affection and love, and, and we, can, we can have a happy marriage because of what God is doing. I need to stop for a minute and just say, non-married people, pay attention. Let's just, for a minute, let's stop talking about it being a marriage series. Because you see this, that right there, it was supposed to be way more dramatic if I didn't do that. <laughs> that isn't just when we get married. That is every single one of us, every single day of our lives. This is why you really, really, really needed to do well in that algebra test. Because you just needed somebody to say you were awesome, even if it was just your algebra teacher. And that's why you really needed to be on the starting lineup, not second string. And that is why it was so important to you that a certain person liked your Instagram post. Because the world has just put holes in our soul. And we spent our whole lives feeling like something's missing. And we go to get married. And then we say this phrase after we've been married a little bit. I don't know if you love me. I just don't feel love. And so what I want to answer today is, is the question, let's ask it first, what do we mean by that? You don't love me. What do we mean by that? I know we don't actually mean that, well, I don't feel butterflies in my tummy like I did on my first day. No, I mean, because we all know feelings fade. That's not what we mean by that. We also know there's a definition of love in the Bible of what God means when he loves us, but that's not really what we mean by that either because most of us couldn't re repeat all of 1 Corinthians 13 and everything else in Scripture. When we say, I don't feel loved, you don't love me, 
What it means is there's some very specific holes in our soul. There's some very specific needs that we have as humans, and they just haven't been met. And when those things are being met, then suddenly we feel, yes, life is right. Now, I'm not a sociologist, so if you'll allow me, I'm going to share with you four things that I've seen as a pastor. I've done a lot of counseling, a lot of work with people, a lot of conversation with broken hearts. So again, I'm not a sociologist, but I'm going to tell you, I've seen four things that have shown up time and time and time again, that when people don't have these, they, they, they don't think they're loved. And for each of us, this will be a little different. And each of these words happens to start with an A. That's a pure accident. I wasn't designing that, but here we go. The first one is, is affirmation. You see, it turns out every single one of us needs to hear a certain amount of, you're awesome. You need to hear it. You don't just have an ego. You're not a, a, a person with a, a pride problem if you say, I need to be told I'm awesome. No, no, no. We are made by a Father in heaven who created us for good works. We are his workmanship. That means he actually made us to do something awesome, and we need to know what it is so we can do it, and somebody can say, you're awesome. Because there's a certain amount of that we have to have so that we can handle the honest conversations of where we're not awesome. Tell you a funny thing, my wife came in my office this week. This was hilarious. I was working on the message for today and I'm sitting there just writing stuff. I've got paper notes and I, I write on a whiteboard because I'll like pace my office and walk around and do stuff. And then I'll write something on the board and keep walking and praying and talking and thinking and whatever. And she comes in and she says, I got a computer, I got a Bible, I got books, I got notes, I got a whiteboard and everything. And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, this is how I write my messages. And she said, oh, so, you know, five years or so ago when you'd walk off stage, I'd think, well, you should have said that and you could have told that differently and you should have added that. But now you walk off the stage and I don't have anything to add. <laughs> Point number one, affirmation. <laughs> I think she was trying to be affirming. So apparently I'm good at preaching now. <laughs> which opens the door to all the things I'm not good at. We won't talk about Tuesday's conversation. Actually, true story, true story here. One of our biggest fights ever, uh, we, we, long, long ago, and uh, we had just got a, a new little house, a tiny little house, but it was new and it was ours and, and we loved it and we were broke because, you know, well, we were young and broke and then we got a new house and that made us twice as young and broke. And, and so, you know, here's the thing, we were eating like rice and beans broke. You know what I'm talking about? Like just rice and beans all the time. I've got vegan friends that eat rice and beans by choice. I don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> rice and beans is a meal for broke people. If there's no meat on the plate, we are not having a meal. That's called a snack. <laughs> anyway, back to my point. We were rice and beans broke, and, and our new house, the front porch was built upon some dirt that was starting to move away. And, and if the dirt moved away, the porch was going to move away, and we needed a retaining wall. But like I said, did I mention we were broke? And, and so the problem is we couldn't afford anybody to do anything about it, so we had some cinder blocks over there, like 8 by 16-inch concrete blocks, and we thought, we can do this. Better I thought we could do this. And so one Saturday, my wife and I are out there, and I'm thinking there's only two ingredients, concrete blocks and concrete. <laughs> How hard can this be? <laughs> but as we begin to make the mortar and, and, and try to stack the bricks, if it's too wet, goes, and all this concrete just squirts out, right, you know? And if it's too hard, you set the brick down, and it's higher than the next brick, and you can't push it down anymore because it's too hard. It turns out that the formula for the exact ratio of, like, water to mortar mix is just as scientific as getting a rocket on the moon. <laughs> At least that's what I think. 
So after all day in the sun and we're hot and we're tired and, and my wife is making suggestions, have you tried this? Why don't you try this? Why don't we try it like this? Time out. I'm just going to inform you all of something. If, if you've never known this, married people or those that think they'll get married someday, there are moments of frustration when your spouse will ask a question that is not meant to be answered. <laughs> if you have never heard of a rhetorical question, I'm just letting you know there is such a thing. So as we had been out in the heat, as we are angry, as I am not exactly equipped to lift a hundred cinder blocks without getting tired, and she keeps giving advice, and it keeps not going well, I turn to her and say, do you think you could do better? And she answered. <laughs> and one of our biggest fights ensued. Why? I was doing a lousy job at it. But the problem is there was an affirmation hole that I couldn't be honest about the fact that I couldn't lay bricks because I just needed somebody to tell me that I was at least trying really hard and doing really well and that they couldn't do it better because it's just what we all need. We all need to be told we're great at whatever God made you to be great at because then we can have an actual honest conversation because here's the deal. How many of you want an honest marriage? Raise your hand. You want an honest marriage? See, here's the problem with honest marriages. You're going to have to hear stuff you don't like about yourself. I mean, come on, think about this. For 15 years, you make your spouse's favorite dish, and on your 15th anniversary, they look at you and say, could I tell you I really actually hate that? Who would want to hear that? I got that story, too. I bought my wife's favorite chocolate for 10 years until I found out. Not her favorite chocolate. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to our world. So when we were first married and she was trying to cook some meals that she thought I would love and make me happy and she's Romanian, if y'all missed that part of the story, and she's cooking Romanian meals, which means a lot of garlic, I detest garlic, a lot of vinegar. It kills me like vinegar and me, like that's how you send me to heaven. And uh, she was squishy vegetables like eggplant and all kinds of other things. I mean, it was just not going well at all. And then also my wife has like a salmonella fear so and let me just tell you, our chicken is always cooked to where there is no chance for salmonella left. <laughs> so between the garlic and the vinegary and the squishy vegetables and the beef jerky, I'm sorry, chicken. And the, she is a great cook now. I'm referring to 23 years ago. And uh, I would mention, well, this could have been cooked less, and well, I'd prefer not that. And, and it crushed her. It absolutely destroyed her and caused incredible fights that I didn't understand. But the answer for that was she was the oldest in her family, and so she was the one that was supposed to take care of her angry, drunk father the few times that he came home, and he'd tell her to cook something and make something, but of course it was never good enough, and he'd either throw it back at her or tell her she'll never amount to anything or tell her how bad it was. And so when I simply said, hey, can we take the chicken off the grill a few minutes earlier, it was... It was hitting something very broken. Second thing we need is acceptance. Every single one of us simply needs to be accepted for who we are. We just need to be wanted. We just need someone. Here's a, a good marriage says, you know what? You're not perfect, but you're mine, and I am so glad for it. That's what a good marriage says. We need someone to say, I want you. But so often the world says, I don't want you. You're not the starting five. You don't make the team. I'm dumping you for someone else. I'm firing you to hire someone else. 
Let me give us some practical advice on acceptance. In order to be accepted when some really important stuff happens, in order to know that they'll love you in your worst moments, remember last week we talked about those big words of like, we've got to have some honest conversations where we can repent and confess, and then the other spouse is going to have to forgive. In order to create that kind of environment, we've got to accept each other in some really tiny stuff. And it's when we can accept each other in the tiny stuff that we create an environment of grace that says, you know what, take a risk on the big stuff. Tell me what's really going on in your soul. But I'm going to help you learn from my mistake. You see, I'm a perfectionist. I would like to say now I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I mean, if you've never met a perfectionist, this is a serious deal. We're really screwed up people. Because first of all, we do everything right. Second of all, we think we do everything right. Third of all, we know we do everything right. And fourth of all, we don't know what's wrong with the rest of you. <laughs> and that's just true as can be. And you add to that a little bit of an anger problem. And whatever tiny thing my wife would do, drop something and break it because she wasn't being careful and paying attention. Or, or bump into the garbage can with the car backing out, which leaves no scratch whatsoever. There would be this incredible screaming or shouting or berating or something that honestly resembled what her dad used to do to her. And so when something big would come along, there was no chance we were ever going to have an honest conversation. And so we would begin to just hide from each other, her in particular needing to hide from me. A funny story, one day I'm out mowing the grass and my wife drives in but she got caught coming the wrong direction. And so on the side of the car that I can see, it doesn't look like it used to. Y'all know what I'm saying? It's, a, it's been a little reshaped. And so I jump off the riding mower with whatever genuine concern that I had in the midst of all of our fighting at that point in our marriage. Oh my gosh, what happened? Are you okay? Are you okay? What happened? Are you okay? And she says to me, I don't want to talk about it. That's true. And so, well, I don't know. You can't say you don't want to talk about it. Did you get hurt? Are you okay? She said, of course I'm okay. It happened a week ago. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> For a week, she was parking the car a certain direction, pulling into the garage with it in a certain She didn't want me to see that she had, like, done serious damage to the car because I would scream about breaking a the glass. There was not an environment that says you're accepted for better or for worse. There was an environment that said you're accepted if you're better than me, but that's it. Hey, can I just give some of you some advice today? Let go of something. Get over it. It's a scratch on a car. A car doesn't mean as much as your spouse. It's a dish. Next time your spouse breaks one instead of yelling, go get one and break another one. Have fun. You'll get new dishes. It'll be awesome. <laughs> If y'all haven't noticed, my car has like a crunched up side on it. My wife didn't do it. A deer did. A deer ran into me. I didn't run into the deer. The deer ran into me all the way down the side of my car. I've never gotten it fixed. You know why I've never gotten it fixed? Because on the other side of my car, one of my sons wanted to show me how independent he was by getting his bike off of the garage wall, and he dropped it onto my car. And then, of course, there's all the other things that are wrong and been scratched and beaten and whatever. And one of the most important things for my soul was to drive around with dents and to figure out this stuff doesn't matter. And I'm not saying you all need to go dent your cars, but for, 
But for this perfectionist that was creating an environment where his wife and his children felt like nothing was ever good enough and they could never be accepted because of that, my car looks like a mess. Third thing we need is affection. We all need to know we're liked. And we all need that like to be expressed. I need you to know this. Emotional like can be expressed in marriage in a way that it cannot be expressed in any other relationship. That's why last Sunday night was so important as we talked about the physical intimacy side of marriage. That is not a perk. It is not a once a month bonus. It is a glue that creates soulmates. I can prove it to you scripturally. It is so important. But that's not all there is to affection. Affection goes beyond the physical and includes things like romance, like flowers, like date nights, like text messages, like sticky notes. Affection is when your spouse just sends you one of the little emojis with the little red hearts for eyes in the middle of the day, right? Affection. My wife put a sticky note, a blue sticky note on my car, in my car right by the gear shift that said, just wanted to tell you how much I love you. And she did that about two months ago, and it was getting ripped and torn, and, and, and she said, when are you going to take that thing down? I said, when it falls down, or you give me a new one? Because it reminded me of the affection. My wife grew up under communism. She stood in breadline for 15 years. She, she was a very, very, very practical woman, still is. She's loosened up a little. But when we first got married, I would, I would come home and say, here, honey, I bought you flowers to show you how much I love you. And she would look at me and wonder why I wasted our money on dead stuff. Y'all do know flowers are officially dead. They have been cut off from their life source. They are pretty for a time. The better the water, you can sustain them for a little bit, but I spent money on dead things and that didn't work for her. Until now, she'll text me sometimes, nice day to pick up flowers, honey. Okay. <laughs> flowers it is. And the fourth thing we need, we just need attention. We need attention. We need to know that we're on their radar. We, we need to know that they see us. When I was first married, sadly, as soon as we got married, it was, hi, honey, let's get on an airplane and, and let's move to America where you know nobody. And then I'm going to go off and work this insane job. I was a high school band director. And uh, for those of you that play football and think all we did was nothing and then show up on Friday nights for a few minutes to bore you at halftime, I don't like you. But for the people who appreciate the nature of band and the amount of work that goes into it, it was all day long, and then rehearsals Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and games on Friday nights and competitions on Saturdays. And so Wednesday when I was off, I was the youth pastor, so I'd go straight from school to church and be there until late at night. And Sundays when I was off, I was the worship pastor. And so I was there half the day. So I literally would only see my family Sunday afternoons. My son, I only saw his face in the crib six days a week. And it was not a good season of life. And, and so as I was teaching school, though, I had this student. His name was Carl. And, and Carl was a weird-looking drummer guy. But it turns out he was a genius. And, and he mentioned that he played chess. I love chess. I happen to, to love playing chess. Every time I go to a country, I pick up a chess board. I bring one back. It's still a bane in my wife's existence. And she tells me I have too many. But that's okay. We're still working through that one. 
And so, you know, at the beginning of band class, you've got a couple minutes where everybody's putting their instruments together, like clarinet players. They're just slow. It's just who they are, you know. They've got to get the little wood wet and everything else, and you know. But drummers are like, got my two sticks, ready to go. I'm good, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, and at the end of the class, they've got to put away the clarinet and the saxophone, and they take forever. But oh, drummer like, oh, two sticks in the pocket, good to go, you know. And so we took that time, and Carl and I would play chess because I thought it'd be great to get to like, you know, I love chess. I like winning. I like winning chess. Turns out, I, I never beat Carl. Carl was really good at chess. And, and so we played, we'd play at the beginning of class, the end of class, during lunch, before school, after school. I promise you, we probably played a thousand games in one school year, which is only 180 days. We played all the time. And I would talk to my wife about, oh, I played Carl today and I almost beat him and I almost got, you know, and I'm always talking about it. And then I'd come home and this was crazy, but I'd actually sit at home at like 10 o'clock at night online and do like the old Yahoo thing, chess, chess, Yahoo. Come on, y'all don't talk about whatever. And so one day my wife came to me and said, Will you teach me chess? I would like to tell you I was a smart person and that was a light bulb moment in my life, but it wasn't. So I'm going to help the rest of you that are as dumb as me. I thought she actually wanted to play chess, which only led to more fights because my wife is not a chess person. See, to play chess, you have to be worried about what you're doing five moves from now. And my wife is like, let's just enjoy the moment. Oh, let's just enjoy life. This is so good. No, let's think about what's coming next and then what's coming next and do it quicker. Come on, we don't have a... We stopped chess very quickly after that. It would be nice if I'd figured out at that moment what she really wanted. And all she really wanted was to be on my radar. Some of us feel like, and some of us actually are, in competition for attention in our spouse's life. You're in competition with their career. Climbing the ladder or making the money somehow has become more important. You're in competition with your hobbies. Look, if your wife doesn't really care for guns and she doesn't like getting up early and she doesn't like it when it's cold, if she says, can you teach me to hunt? She does not want to hunt. And if your husband says, can you teach me how to log into Pinterest? <laughs> he does not want to do Pinterest. You know, in my, my experience as a pastor, one of the saddest ones, one of the, what should be the easiest to fix, one of the one of the things a lot of spouses feel they're competing with, TV. Come on, y'all. You really want to lose your marriage over whatever series you're binge watching lately? I had a couple sit in my office one time and they were struggling with this and the guy was proud that he had the, the NFL Sunday ticket where he saw every, not only did he get, he said, I watch every single game, every game. And when I looked at her face, she was not smiling. I'm gonna step on some toes, but you know what else some people are competing for attention? It's with the kids. The best thing you can give your children is not a child-centered home, but a marriage-centered family. 
Because losing your spouse and teaching your kids they're the center of the world so they can grow up and find out they're not is not the answer. I don't know what it is for you, but there's probably something. So I've got a challenge for you today. (laughs) We had one of those last week, didn't we? Well, last week was a pretty hard challenge to go and have some tough conversations. It led to a lot of marriage counseling appointments, and we're glad for that. But I'm going to give you another one today. And if if you're saying, ah, come on, man, lay off. I'm going to say, why are you here? I mean, is, is this really like a, I just want to go to church, check a box, feel good about myself? Or do you actually want something to change? You see, there's something written on the other side of that wall right there that says, what do you expect God to do today? I'm going to tell you what I expect. I expect God to take some hard hearts and to make them soft. I expect God to take some broken marriages and to make them whole. I expect God to take an immovable spouse and to drag them across the line you never thought you'd see them on the other side of. That's what I expect. And so, yeah, I'm giving you some hard challenges. Here's your challenge. Have coffee, go out on a date, sit on the porch, doesn't matter. And I want you to ask your spouse, on a scale of one to five, how affirmed do you feel by me? On a scale of one to five, How accepted do you feel in our marriage? On a scale of one to five, how much affection do you get from me? How much attention do you get from me? Now I'm gonna flip the tables. Let's talk to the other spouse for a second. I hope you both asked that question, so I hope I'm actually both talking talking to both of you right now, but I want you to remember this. And after you give your spouse those numbers, some of which are probably going to be pretty low, I want you to go and talk to God. I want you to ask God all these holes, especially the big ones, How much of this do I need you to fix that my spouse will never meet? How much have I been putting a weight on my spouse to do what only you can do? Then I'm going to ask you to let God begin to heal. Because once God begins to make you whole, and begins that process that you'll go through for your entire life, then you can begin to receive whatever your spouse pours in. It'll actually stay. It'll begin to add up. And those numbers will begin to go up. The truth is, your spouse can't do God's job in your soul. Today, I want to encourage us to stop chasing love and just start receiving first from God and then you'll be able to receive from your spouse I want to close by praying for those of you that can admit this is you it's funny that as I've asked people to raise their hands so I could pray for them today 
sometimes people haven't been very quick to raise their hands and I, I'm, I'm a little surprised because every person I've ever met, that's what we look like. I guess maybe some are aware of it and some are not. But I'm gonna pray for anybody who says, I, I, need, I need God to fix. I need God to affirm me where the world hasn't. I need God to make me feel accepted. I need affection from God. I need to know I have his attention. And so when, whenever I have a friendship, whenever I get married, whenever I go to work, they, they're adding to who God's already made me to be. And they don't have to try to make up for what the world broke. If you'd like me to pray for you, would you raise your hand? God, I thank you for the, the hands that are raised. I thank you for the people that are aware of their need. Thank you for those who are willing to admit they need to be touched by you. That are able to admit there is a brokenness in their soul, that the world has created holes and sometimes gaping holes. That no person can fix and no spouse alone can make right. But we need you. We need you to come and do what only you can do. To fix broken hearts. To put back what the world has taken out. God, my prayers for every one of these people, especially every marriage that is represented, that we will begin to recognize and to live out of your affirmation and your acceptance, knowing that you say we are enough, and in you we are good enough, in you we are wanted, in you we are loved. If we could just stay in that place of prayer, there are some of us here that have never surrendered our lives to to God, we've never accepted the death of Jesus as our personal salvation. You see, although Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for nameless, faceless sea of humanity, and if you're a human, you're good to go, but every single one of us needs to exchange the life we now live for the one he has for us. I say it like this, we need to thank him that he died for us and say, now I wanna live for him. If you've never done that, I wanna help you do that right now. I'm not gonna embarrass you, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up, but right where you're seated, I'm gonna just lead you in the beginning of a conversation with him. Would you all join me right where you're seated and pray? Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you'd fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.